Welcome to another episode of Adding Context, a podcast of compelling conversations centered on advancing and enhancing the human experience. I am your host, Michael Bollins. Welcome back to another episode of Adding Context. Today I'm speaking to Deborah Driggs. She is a former model, actress, insurance guru, and activist. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me today. So you uh, you wear a number of hats. You've done a number of things. Why don't we start with your early life as a figure skater? Wow, you're making me go way <laughs> back. Okay. Yes, those that's uh, that's 50 years ago. Because um, I really, really started seriously skating at the age of seven. And by age nine, I was skating before school and after school. I was doing patch at 4 a.m. and then going to a private Catholic school. Getting And then at the end of the day at 3 o'clock, my mom would take her lunch break and pick me up and take me back to the rink until 7 o'clock at night. And that just was my world. I didn't, you know, I just thought that was what I did and what I was going to be doing. And I thought that I would be skating from my whole life. You know, that's just plans on yeah, the Olympics. I, yeah, you know, and by the way, if that didn't work out, then the plan was to join the holiday uh, holiday on ice or the ice follies. Yeah, because those like yeah those shows were really big in the seventies. They were big in the eighties so, too. I remember going to them with uh, school trips. Yes. What was the um, I guess the some of your happier moments or, or memorable moments skating? Oh, I think one of my happiest moments was I had a competition in Seattle and my dad's family is from Moses Lake, Washington. So they all came to watch me skate and compete. And that was, it was nerve wracking, but it was also very, very fulfilling for me because I think that was the first time in my skating career that everybody was, I guess, you know, you don't, you know how it is when you're doing anything in life, even if you're, if you're working out at the gym, you don't, you can't see the markers, you can't see the progression, but other people can. Right. And so for me, it was one of those markers where I knew that all those years of hard work had been paying off because of the response that my dad's family had toward me and toward my skating and it was it was such a big marker that my my grandfather pulled my mother aside and said he was a wealthy man and he said let me please pay for her ice skating from this day forward and my my father wouldn't allow it right. but but he saw the investment he saw the potential he saw he saw wow this is exactly what she should be doing because you know i had a really good competition i felt really good about my skating at that time in my life. And that to me was like one of those memories where I just, I was on a high. It was the first time I think I was on a high from ice skating. Yeah. And I was just felt so good. And, and also it was really nice to have somebody other than my mom or my coaches or people that I skated with give me kudos and, right. and tell me how great I was doing. 
the validation for all your hard work. The validation was so necessary for me at that time. And it just, it it boosted my self-esteem and my confidence. I think validation for any young athlete, regardless of the sport, is is crucial. And and I've I coach youth hockey, I coach youth wrestling, and my when I coach wrestling, my perspective is I, I don't care about wins or losses, which I don't ever refer to as wins or losses. It's either winning or learning. I don't care about that. I, I care about the progress that you make in the sport. You know, I want to see even if it's just the slightest bit better takedowns or, or whatever they're doing. I, and I commend the kids and I talk to them after all the matches and it's very big on validation for them to see that somebody is acknowledging their progress. So I, I, I can understand that. What, um, what was, I guess the defining moment to kind of mark the potential end or the end of your skating career? That it was, it was a definite, another marker in my life, but this time this was a really negative one because my parents were getting divorced and at that time my mother's paycheck was paying for all of my ice skating and so and I didn't really realize that you know as a young girl I didn't you know you don't have a concept of where the money's coming right. from and I knew that my mom was struggling I knew she was tired I knew she was putting all this effort into me and I think it was really sad for her and I because when she got a divorce finally from my dad, now all of her, her paycheck had to pay for necessities and survival. And that that was a big shift. And and I, I just remember it was like the death of ice skating and the death of my parents. And it was like two whammies. I was turning 14 years old. And I really thought my life was over. I thought... What's the point? You know, two things that were so familiar to me now are gone. Right. And then it was, you know, all the things that you stack onto that, you know, all, you know, and these are all now when I look back, I realize that these were all trauma events, you know, and I didn't know that. I didn't know that this was, I just thought it was a thing. You got over it. You move on, stiff upper lip, get over it crimes for babies, you know, all that stuff. That's how I was brought up. So I didn't know that all of these things that I was dealing with were part of trauma. And so it wasn't just my parents are getting divorced. You can't skate anymore. It was being moved around now because we had to, we couldn't live where we were living and we ended up moving. And then we, then we couldn't afford that. And we had to move in with my mom's brother. And then move in with her parents and then you know my dad was moving around and now they're both dating and all these other things were just post-it notes on top of the big compounding big of it and so it was just compounding and becoming worse and worse and the more post-its that were being put on me at that age the more I went into a very dark just dark place and I got to high school. I ended up having to live with my dad because my mom didn't know where she was going to live. And at 14 years old, I'm living with my dad. My dad was not a dad. I never really hung out with my dad. I could name the times on one hand that I hung out with my dad. I think he came to see me skate once. So he wasn't really a dad. He was just a guy in my life. And 
I ended up having to live with him, and he was never around. So from the age of 14 until I graduated high school, I was living by myself, really. Because he was working a really odd shift called Twilight Shift. So he'd go to work at 3, 4 in the afternoon, and he didn't get off work until 1 or 2 in the morning. So I never saw the man. Right. And, and he never gave me a dime, you know, because I'd come home and say, I need money for this, for books, for, you know how you need little things, little things is, when right. you're, and I was like, get a job. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I started working at a very young age and I lied on my first job. I worked for uh, pioneer chicken was my first paycheck job. I worked odd jobs before that for cash. Right. Like I worked at a cemetery, putting flowers on a cemetery, on graves. I, I worked stuffing envelopes. I mean, I did all these crazy little jobs to make cash and babysit. And then my first paycheck job was Pioneer Chicken. And I told them I was 16. I was 15, you know. Yeah. And they didn't fuzzy. check because I was a good worker, so they yeah. didn't check. And so, you know, I've, I've worked from an early age and... Never dealt with the trauma, never dealt with anything, just worked, kept going forward. And then I went into a complete crazy party phase in high school. I was just crazy and partied and I had money and I bought my first car and I had all this independence. And all of a sudden I was getting attention in school because, you know, before I was at the ice skating rink and I didn't really have a social life. And now I'm going out and partying on the weekends and it just, you know, by the time I left high school, I just, and it was funny because my dad, my senior, I turned 18, um, my birthday's in December, so I turned 18 in my senior year. I was one of those kids that could write your own note, kid, you know, sorry, I'm not going to be in school, the waves are big, sorry, <laughs> you know. And so I came home from school one day, I think it was around February or March, and my dad came in my room, you know, cigarette in one hand, drink in the other, and he's like, yeah, you're going to have to start paying rent. And I was like, what? Because I thought, you blank, blank, blank. Um, I've been working for four years straight. I've never asked you for a dime. Now you want me to pay rent? I already have a car, insurance. I pay for my gas. I pay for my clothes. Now he wants me to pay rent. Supporting yourself. So I, yeah, my mom had remarried at this time. And so I called her and I said, hey, she was living an hour and a half away, and I said, I don't care if I have to drive every day to school. Can I come live with you? I just needed to get away from him. Right. His energy and his attitude for me now, because now I'm, I have this different confidence. I'm independent, and I just didn't want to tolerate it anymore. And so I went and I lived with my mom, and my mom and her new husband worked in Gardena, which was about 20 minutes from my high school. So I literally would, after school, go to their office, work with them, do whatever my mom needed help with, leave my car there and commute with them every day. So I'd get up in the morning early, commute in, drive to school, and I did this for the rest of my senior year. And... I um, really did not do well my senior year, and I almost didn't graduate because there were a couple classes I just I wasn't showing up at. And I graduated with a D minus C average. <laughs> now I think I got mostly D's, and you know, it was it was like it was almost like they just let me graduate to let me go right, type thing. Like on. okay, 
Yeah, she's not, you know what I mean? It was like, why would you have her stay and do this again? Like, let her go. Right. And I talked one of the teachers into letting me go, really. And so he gave me a D minus, and that helped me to graduate. And then I went to um, college in Mission Viejo, a junior college. And I had tried out for the song leading squad. And I think this is where my first mentor really stepped in because she got my transcript, my grades, and she's like, you can't be on the squad. And I'm like, what? What Are you kidding? Because I had worked so hard to get on the squad. She's like, your grades are so bad. Your grade point average is not, you are just not at the level to be on the squad. And it was the first time that I really wanted to be on do do something improve myself in since ice skating right and i said can you put me on probation i i promise you i will have the best grades this is i just didn't like high school and i didn't do well there because i wasn't motivated but i'm really motivated i'm gonna do really well and so i talked myself into being put on probation and that semester i was on the dean's list nice i'm i'm kind of in the same boat one I'm a fellow Sagittarius. Our birthdays are three days apart. Oh, okay. Are you the 10th or <laughs> the, the 16th? I'm the 16th. Okay. Um, at my high school graduating class, I think it was like around 350 kids. I think I ranked 345th, 340th. Uh-huh. Um, just, I, I just, I didn't have the interest there. I didn't rank. So <laughs> we ranked <laughs> somewhere. Just, just let just her go. go, but don't, don't even say she's on, she's not involved. <laughs> right. And then when I went, ended up going to college many, many years after I graduated high school, I ended up graduating with a, I think like a 3.4 GPA and it's, it's just a different perspective and, you know, allowing yourself to mature a little bit, and let something settle. And, you know, from your young age at 14, dealing with the traumas that you dealt with on top of all the interpersonal stuff that goes on growing up at, at a teenager level that give you, you need some time to kind of let things breathe and, and move. So, yeah, that's very true. I, I absolutely went, when I just, I think at 14, I gave up. I really did. I, I didn't care anymore. I had no, I don't know really. It's probably all the training in ice skating that kept me going. But I would say that for the most part, I had given up. And I just thought, you know, blanket. Yeah. I don't know if I can cuss on the show, but, you know, fuck fuck it. You know, I'm done. Nobody cares, so I don't care. If you don't care, then I don't care. Ha ha. You know, like, like, you're not going to hurt me because I'm going to hurt me. Okay. You can't hurt me if I'm doing it myself. Yeah. And so... And that was my, my mentality, which is so backwards. You know, it should, I wish I would have had the opposite of like, well, I'll show you because I'm going to excel. But instead I was like, fuck you. I'll show you. I'll just be completely horrible and really hard to deal with. And you'll be sorry you ever did, you know? And it's like, oh God, no, that's all wrong. That's all backwards. And, but that was my coping. Right. That's, that's all I knew. I didn't, I didn't have any mentors. I didn't have any adults in my life at that time saying, you know, if you just do this, this, and this, and it'll all work out. And maybe if you just take a little time off, but you can always go back and skate. And I didn't have any other solutions or ideas being presented, presented. And, and so I just gave it all up and 
then when this woman arrived in my life and said, you can't do this because your grades are completely atrocious. I was like, well, wait a second. You know, my light bulb. All of a sudden, Deb, the ice skater, came back in the room, and I was like, well, wait, a, wait, a, wait, 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 hold on. Before we jump to conclusions here, it's not because I'm not smart. It's not because I don't want to do it. Nobody cared back then, but right. I, you care, so I care now. And, and she really did care. You know, she would check in with me. She'd pull me aside. How are you doing? Are you keeping up? And I'd say, yes, I am. I haven't missed a class. And then when I got on the dean's list, she just kind of gave me that smile, you know, like, you know, okay, you were right type thing. Because, you know, I convinced her right. that it wasn't about, it was just that I didn't have any motivation or anybody in my life that cared. And you when validated you have people, her. I totally validated her. And so I ended up being on the squad. I won homecoming queen <laughs> my first year in college, you know, I... My whole life turned around, and plus, I was in a different class of people now. I was in a different, you know, the neighborhood that I lived in in high school was not very safe. And, you know, it was a, not a very, there was not a lot of money in this neighborhood, and I didn't see anything fancy or, you know. And all of a sudden, I moved to the you know, Mission Viejo, Dana Point, this beautiful area down south. And it's like mid upper middle class. Everybody's, you know, 300 grand and up. And I'm in a whole different, I'm in a whole different environment now. Yeah. And I'm socializing with a whole different group of people. And I realized, wow, I've been kind of sheltered from the world like there's a whole other world out there and I was in this very little teeny bubble in Inglewood and you know it's funny because about 10 years ago I'm driving on the freeway on the 405 with my kids in the car and they had just started high school and they were complaining about their high school and we lived in Newport Beach at the time and they I don't know what they were complaining about they were just being typical teenagers but we were passing Rosecrans on the freeway it was I could see it coming and I something got in my head and I got off the freeway and they're like what are you doing because we were going to the valley which was like another hour another 45 minute drive and I said I'm getting off the freeway and they're like why and I'm like I want to show you something and I pulled into my high school and it's not a cool neighborhood you know this right. is like you know and so I pull in my high school was on Rosecrans and Prairie and I pull in and the security guard working there says, can I help you? And I said, yeah. I said, I, if it's okay with you, I'd like to take my kids and just walk around and show them where I went to high school. And he goes, you went here? And I said, yes, I did. And he said, get out of here. And I said, yeah, I went to this high school. And he's like, be my guest, right? And my kids were like, mom, it's okay. We don't want to get out of the car. We're good. <laughs> and I turned around. And I was like, no, I want you to see where I went to high school. And they didn't want to get out of the car. So I said, well, let me show you where I lived. And then that freaked them out because we drove up about eight blocks to 138th and Prairie. I make a left and I haven't seen my apartment since I lived in it. And so I look and I go, is that it? And then we, I remember it had a long driveway and my apartment was down this long driveway. And now these windows have bars on them and it's like a crack house. And I said, see that window? That was my bedroom. And my kids are like, can we leave now? Can we get out of here? System shock. System shock. 
And I said, yeah, but this is where I lived. This is where I went to high school. This was my life. And I did it all alone, you know? And it wasn't to get them to go, oh, my God. You know, it was to go, hey, it could be a lot worse. Perspective. <laughs> you know? That's, it adds perspective. It could, be, it could be a lot worse. You guys have it pretty good. Yeah, I, I, have, uh, I have similar battles with my eldest. Um, he's a freshman this year. And his, his, just, his whole mindset towards school is just completely ridiculous. So we, we have our battles back and forth. But he actually goes to the high school that I went to. So there's... I didn't move far from home. I stayed pretty close, but I, I, I have an idea of what those battles were for you. Yep. So, well, I can't even imagine my kids going to my high school. <laughs> that would just be, I couldn't do it. I don't know. Yeah, I, it's, it, it, it was a good high school. It's, you know, I, I lived in a you know, kind of middle of the road area and our school district was pretty, pretty good. And, you know, we had kids that uh, to me, I think education for the most part, it's what the student makes of it. Cause we had kids in my school that went to some really, really highly esteemed colleges and universities. And we had kids that, you know, didn't do anything. And I think that's, yeah. that runs a spectrum everywhere. So I think it's with education. Yeah. There's a lot that goes into what the area you're in, but it also goes, depends a lot on the student. So that's my little spiel on education at the moment. <laughs> I agree because it's, education is not for everybody. Right. And that's why you, that's why when people use example, well, you know, half these billionaires never went to college. And, and that's true because they were thinking about how they were going to create their life. They were right. in a different mindset. Education is not for everybody. And that's why it's kind of outdated because it doesn't work for, you know, it worked back in the day where, you know, how it started and, you know, what education was about back in the day, but we're in the 21st century now. It's like, you know, it's a little outdated to be learning the way we learned 50 years ago. Right. And I think that the the idea that, you know, everybody has to go to college, that was the big push when I was in high school. Oh, everybody has to go to college. And there are just some people that college isn't for, you know, some people no. should be going to trade schools. Some people should be doing other things. And yes, yeah. there are the people that need to go to school and your doctors and, and high degree type things. But I'm friends with a number of teachers and, and to see the, the struggles that they have and, and the complaints that they have, it's, it's kind of infuriating that we're kind of sticking in the same old wheel as opposed to kind of updating with technology and, and the information yeah. we have. So, yeah. So how long after you graduated, college did your modeling career start or were they kind of about the same yeah you know I was 19 20 years old when the doors started opening I tried out for a professional cheerleading squad in 1983 for the LA Express this is when the USFL started it didn't last but you know the first year was a big year and the LA Express cheerleaders were like the dance squad of the whole thing. And, and so I made that squad. And when I, when I, when I got that, that was kind of the intro into, wow, I kind of, I kind of like to perform because all of a sudden we were thrown into radio shows, talk shows. It was all about, you know, cause it was a new, a new thing to have football in the summer. And it was a whole new experience for the girls that made the squad and and you know we had Paula Abdul coming and teaching our routines this is before she became famous so this was all a whole different time and 
I just remember going and doing all the shows and all the shows and showing at malls to sign autographs and perform our cheers for the crowds. And I thought I could do this every day. Like, I love it. I loved it. I loved interacting with people and I loved that part of it. And so that was kind of the start. And then I went and took a job when this, that year was over. I didn't try out again for the second year because I got a job with American airlines and I was a flight attendant for about nine months while I was a flight attendant, one of the girls that I cheered with called me and said, I got a job in Japan dancing and we need another girl. And we, and we had, we had done a few outside gigs dancing together. And she said, you should come and then we'll have six people. So I went to Japan, I quit my job. And I remember my whole family, everybody was like, you can't, you you can't quit your job and go to Japan. You've never left the country. You know, like it was just, they couldn't believe that I was actually doing it. Right. It was like, it was just unheard of, you know, to pack a suitcase and move to Japan. And I remember they were like, you're not even going to last a month. You're going to get there. You're going to hate it. And I was like, I'm going. Right. And for me, it seemed like another, it was like going to outer space because I had never been anywhere. I had been on one trip my entire life. I went to England and Spain because that's where my grandmother and grandfather are from. And so I went to England and Spain when I was 14. And that's the only time I've ever left the country. Or So I was going. I was bent on going. And when I was in Japan and we were doing these shows, we did six shows a night and Somebody, I, somebody came up to me, you know, a Japanese person came up to me and to the person, the, the, the Japanese man that kind of ran our group spoke really good English. And so another Japanese person came up to him and said in Japanese, you know, we want to hire this girl. So he asked me, he said, hey, this, this, they would like to hire you for a commercial. And they told me what they were going to pay me. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so I showed up. That week, I don't know if it was the next day or when it was, but I showed up and they put me in a poodle skirt. They put a wig on me, gloves, and they had me do go-go dancing for this commercial and and took all these photos because there were photos to go with the campaign. And I'm sure, you know, looking back, it was probably worth a lot more money than what they paid me. But because I didn't have an agent, I didn't right. know anything about the business I was just happy to do it. So now I'm dancing every night, six shows a night. I'm now I'm doing my first commercial campaign thing. I don't know anything about that, but all I did know is when I get back to the United States, this is what I'm doing. Right. That's what I knew. And so I come back, I, I ended up staying in Japan six and a half months because after our dance contract was up, I stayed and I modeled because that, that commercial that I did, everybody took notice of. And now the agency wanted to sign me and have me stay and do modeling and commercials. So I stayed and did really well and did some fun print work and not high fashion, but, you know, fun catalog, girl right. next door, funny girl stuff. And then when I came back to America, I told everybody I was going to be an actress and I was going to do commercials and I was going to model. And they were like, okay. Okay. <laughs> You know, they just kind of looked at me like, 
Okay, she went to Japan and she ate too much raw fish, and now, <laughs> now she's really gone off the reservation. And so they tried to kindly tell me that models are 5'10", and you know how many people want to be in the entertainment business, and, you know, one out of a million people make it, and it's not an easy business to get into. I mean, I got everything that you can imagine. All the negatives. Yeah, and I just thought, first of all, Never take advice from anybody who's not doing what you want to do. Right. Because they don't know. They don't know what they're talking about. You know, I always find it funny when people are giving me advice about anything that they have not done. So like when women give me advice about how to raise my kids and they don't have kids, it's kind of like that. Yeah. Or it's kind of like somebody giving me advice about my job and life insurance and they've never worked in, in that industry right. or in the financial industry, either one. So, you know, it's that's why you have to be careful who you're listening to as a mentor and who you're listening to as a friend. They're completely opposite. You go to your mentors. Those are the people that are in your business and doing what you do, and they can guide you. The and then you go to your friends for friendship and for friendly advice, not for mentor advice. There's big, big difference, and that's a very hard lesson if you don't get that right away because if you're taking advice from people that are not doing what you want to do you're screwed (laughs) because (laughs) how can you take advice from somebody who can't see it for themselves or haven't been there haven't been in your shoes yeah yeah. if people can't see it for themselves they're not going to see it for you they're not going to go of course you can of course you can you could do that you can do anything you put your mind to they're just not They're not going to be your cheerleaders. You need cheerleaders in your life. So I didn't have any of this. I didn't have mentors. I didn't have cheerleaders. All I had was every single reason why it wasn't going to work out and why I couldn't do it. And the drive. And and yeah. And so I said, okay, watch. And so sure enough, I signed with an agency in Orange County. I joined an acting class. I joined a commercial workshop. Next thing I know, I have a commercial agent And slowly but surely, I'm building a book. I'm building, you know, I'm getting tear sheets from catalog work. I'm now, the first commercial my agent ever sent me out on was for a a Japanese commercial, and I booked it. So I had momentum. And then I got a really fun gig on a show. It was before QVC, before the Home Shopping Network. We had a show called The Fashion Channel. And so I was the model on the fashion channel and that was it that, you know, that's what got my momentum. I finally had support and I had cheerleaders and I was listening now to people that were doing what I wanted to do and what I was doing. And in 1989, I got a call that Playboy wanted to see me about a lingerie book and it was an audition and they wanted me to come and audition. And I thought, you know, I remember my agent telling me this about the audition and explaining to me what it was. And I said, well, is there any nudity? And she said, I don't think so. This is for the cover, but it's Playboy, so there could be partial nudity. And I said, well, I'm okay with that. So I go to the famous building on Sunset. I sign in like everybody else. And there were a lot of girls there for the audition. And they gave me a robe when they called me back and they said, you know, take everything off, put this robe on, and then we'll bring you in the studio to do Polaroids. Well, I took everything off and I left on my undergarments. 
And when I came into the studio and I took off the robe, the photographer was like, we need to see your whole body. And I said, I'm not here for that. I'm here for the lingerie book right. for that audition. And he said, well, everything we do has nudity. Now, to explain this, because we're talking about 1989, this is a very different time in the world. So back then they were looking for scars, tattoos, birthmarks, piercings, any little hidden, you know, a lot of people got tattoos back then where you couldn't see them because they wanted to work and models didn't have tattoos back then, really. And so that was the deal. Got it. And I said, you know, I'm not taking off my clothes. I'm out of here. And I left. And so I thought I'm not going to get this because, you, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't, <laughs> the way we, it, well, I wasn't aligned with this audition at all. Right. And so... I got home that afternoon and I got a call that, you know, this is back in the day for people listening that don't know what that means, that I had an answering machine and you had to go, you had to wait till you got home to hear your messages. You had to press a button to listen to your messages. Now, you know, everything's instantaneous, <laughs> but, you know, not, it wasn't until I got home and I listened to my messages and I get this message, you know, we want to shoot you for a centerfold. And I literally called my agent and I said, I think they're confusing me with one of the other girls. She's like, nope, they, they, they're interested in you. They want you first. And that's why I ended up shooting for Playboy. I thought about it for a really long time. It wasn't an easy decision for me. It, it wasn't something that I aspired to do. And so I had, you know, I had a, I had a really nice career going. And just so you know, back in 1989, for me to do Playboy would mean I probably wouldn't be the model on the Fashion Channel anymore. I probably wouldn't be doing catalog Fedco and all these family catalogs that the came in the mail. To it, yeah. Yeah. So I had to really think about what I was doing, and you know, do I give up all this great little steady work that I have to be on the pages of Playboy? And so we went back and forth, and we all decided that it was a good move for me to do. At that time, Playboy was the number one magazine in the world. And when I started to learn about uh, Hef, it, it, it made me even more intrigued. I was really intrigued by him, his story, and the fact that his daughter, Christy, at the time was running the company. And I, I was just intrigued by all of it. And that helped solidify my, my decision. And... I feel today that it was really, really a good decision because, you know, once a playmate, always a playmate. And I'm part of history. It's it's a really cool, really cool um, subject, right. you know, in it's a unique. lot of ways. You know, really it's very a... unique. It's very unique. It's a one of a kind. There'll never be another Playboy. I mean, Playboy right. was... And there's was, only a finite of people that can, A, call themselves a playmate and B, call themselves, yeah. you know, the playmate of the year, so to speak. Yeah. And, and you know, you, when you think about it, there's 12 a year. And I remember sitting in the makeup room. It was very surreal when I started shooting everything. And I was in the makeup room and became really good friends with a makeup artist. And she said, you know, Deb, because she knew I was from L.A. And, you know, a lot of the girls that come in, they don't they're like mesmerized by everything in Los Angeles and they're starstruck. And I, here I am, I'm from LA and I've been in LA, you know, my whole life working. And so she's like, you know, we get over a thousand submissions a day 
from girls all over the world that just all they want to do is be in the magazine. It's their whole goal in life to be in the magazine. And it just hit me like a ton of bricks. You know, it just hit me. I was, it just became this very surreal moment. And I thought, here I am in this very famous building on Sunset that years from now, people are going to be like, oh my God, you were in that building because it's no longer there. The building's there, but it's not the Playboy building. And it's just surreal. It was a surreal moment that I had thinking, I am part of history right now. And I've always looked at it that way when people say, do you ever have any regrets? Da, 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 da. And I'm like, regrets? God, no. <laughs> it's like it's like I'm part of history forever. Yeah, there's there's obviously multiple, now, multiple perspectives. Now, I will say this, to add on to that, because I did have a little bit of an issue when, you know, the internet came about and all of a sudden you could Google somebody. Right. Then I kind of had to, I was like, really? I didn't think that there would be a day in my life where people could Google me and my whole portfolio would show up, you right. know, it's like, so to speak. So yeah, that was the only, that was kind of the only thing, you know, cause I, we didn't sign for that when in 1989, nobody knew. Nobody knew where we were, we were technology wise. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, somebody knew, but they just didn't tell me. <laughs> Uh, as you, you know, kind of pointed before, you know, people kind of have perspectives that are not in the know of things and they speak with a sense of authority from somebody who was a playmate. What was, what was it like? Like, how were you treated as a playmate? Like gold, <laughs> really like a precious stone. They, you know, that was the one thing about half is nothing went in that magazine unless he approved it. So he was very aware of what girls were in the magazine. He met all of us. We were always invited up to the mansion. We'd go up on Sunday nights just to hang out with him. He loved that. He loved when the girls came up and he'd always have a buffet and you could watch movies or play backgammon. And he just loved that. He loved the energy of that. And during my shoot, I was treated like royalty. I mean, they every day, where do you want to have lunch? They'd bring in lunch from Nikki Blair's or La Dome, these two five-star restaurants that were on Sunset. They'd bring in lunch from these places. They'd always ask me, are you okay? How are you feeling? Are you tired? Do you need a break? You there, know? There's been a, a number of, of girls who have, um, women who have taken that and, and really launched themselves into you know, stardom and things like that. Um, Absolutely. You did you is that what transitioned you and got your opportunity to to do some of the acting that you did? I I well I you know I had an agent before I did Playboy and so it definitely propelled me into meeting people that I would not ordinarily, you know, be meeting. So, you know, Playboy would get calls from everyone saying, "We'd like to have a a meeting with Deborah." Whether they had a project for me or not, everybody just wanted to meet with me. And so I met everybody. I met everybody from Brian Grazer to somebody just starting out that was doing a student film. I mean, everybody was on my roster, you know, it was like, this person wants to meet with you, this person. And I met with everybody. I, I didn't ever feel that, oh, well, that's too small or that's too big. I met with everybody. Because for me, that was, everything that I was doing was a learning experience. And I was not against doing student films or doing something for free or, or you know, 
to me, those were just building blocks. Right. And so because I did have experience, uh, Playboy had a, you know, the cable was taking off the cable networks and Playboy channel was really taking off. And they decided to do a show called Playboy's Hot Rocks. And so I was their first VJ. So it was just things like that, you know, that I get called in for all of that. And when they needed, they would tell me, you know, when they needed a girl that wasn't afraid to talk on camera, they, they brought me in for whatever that was. Cause it's one thing to look really pretty on camera and pose. And there's so many girls that, you know, look phenomenal, but not a lot of girls want to talk on camera. Still pictures are one thing. Moving pictures are another. <laughs> exactly. And so, and then I put myself in a two year after Playboy, I decided to take acting a little ser- more seriously. And I put myself in a two year acting program, which I swear that was the start of my self discovery if 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 I were to say where that started where my journey of really starting to look at myself and my insecurities and my all of a sudden those traumas that I talked about earlier Mm -hmm. even though I was starting that journey I still didn't know at this time that that had to be looked at but I knew there was something I knew that I had something I was very dis in my, in some of my acting exercises, I was a little disconnected from myself. And I thought, I wonder what, all of a sudden I was getting very insecure and I, that wasn't like me, you know, I was very insecure and very connected. And then all of a sudden I was getting disconnected because things were coming up, but I didn't know what they were. Right. And so it was almost like I was sabotaging a little bit. And so I understand all that when people say, Oh my God, you know, you see these entertainers and you see them do these crazy things and you're like, why are they sabotaging their career? They don't, you know, you just don't know. Right. You don't know what you don't know. You don't know that you're dealing with a mental health issue or a trauma or you have a trauma bond or you have whatever. There's so many different words for it today. Right. When you're dealing with that stuff, it's gnarly. It can be debilitating. And so it's unfortunate when you have to deal with it in front of the whole public, you know, right. it's like, because nobody, unless you're going through it and you understand it, you, you don't know, you just see somebody acting crazy and you think, oh my God, they're going to ruin their whole career. Why? You know, the why other, are they doing that? Right. And the other perspective is, you know, why are they doing this? You know, they have everything that they could possibly want. Why, you know, why are they acting this way? But, you know, the reality yeah, that's, is, is that's being, the million dollar being scrutinized. Deal, right? You know, every, everything that they do is, is literally under a microscope and, you know, normal people like myself and they don't understand what it is to be constantly under the public eye. And, and, and I, I, I have a little sympathy for, for some of the big name actors that are constantly pestered by paparazzi and things like that, because, you know, while they did sign up to kind of be the face of things and, and be in front of cameras and things like that, they still deserve to have some things be private. So. Yes. What was your, uh, are you still in SAG or do you still have a card for SAG? Absolutely. I'll never, (laughs) never let that go. My God, I worked so hard to get that. No, yeah, of course. I still have that. And, you know, that's something I'm super proud of because it's not easy to get that card. I I can totally attest to that because I have one myself. (laughs) So it's, it's, it's once you're there, you don't want to, don't want to lose that. (laughs) Due to the length of our conversation, we split it into two parts. 
If you'd like to know more about Deborah while you wait, please check out her website, DebraDriggs.com, or her Instagram, at DebraDriggs. D-E-B-O-R-A-H-D-R-I-G-G-S. Thanks for listening to another episode of Adding Context. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at addingcontext.com. You can also support our show via Patreon. Send us feedback and show ideas to podcast at addingcontext.com.